Greetings this morning, in Jesus' name. It's been a good morning. I know what my message is going to be here, and you all don't, and it's been really interesting to sit through the rest of these, um, even that last song. Uh, it's interesting how God works, how He speaks. Let's uh, start with a word of prayer this morning. Let's bow our heads. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we come before you, <coughs> before you here again this morning. Father, we ask that you're, you would be in our midst here today. Father, and that the Spirit would have freedom to move and to work in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would work in my heart as I share this message, Father. It's not something that I that I can say that I've mastered. It's not something I can say that I fully understand even. I just pray, Father, that you would work in each of our hearts and in each of our lives. Give us wisdom, Father, to understand what it is that you are speaking to us through your word. Father, just pray that you would work in our hearts, draw us closer to yourself. Father, give us the, the strength and the courage that we need to walk in your ways in this uh, dark and evil time. Father, just pray that you would just bless the remainder of the service here. Father, pray that you would help me to be just a channel for your word this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Still have a little bit of a a cold left over from Bible school, so you'll have to forgive me for my sniffles and my uh, clearing of my throat up here. I'll try not to do it into the mic for you. Uh, this morning, I'd like to talk about a church in the Bible. Um, it's not really where the heart of uh, this message lies exactly, and I was trying to figure out how to how to really draw some of my thoughts together as I was thinking over this the last week or so, and especially yesterday and this morning even. And I guess um, maybe the best way to explain it is in the message this morning there'll be. Could you say three different layers? So I want to start out looking at the church as an example. And when we get through that, just kind of peel that back and look at one little point that it talks about them. And then even, even peel that back a little bit and look at the basis of that even later. So hopefully you can follow along. I'll try not to uh, try to make this so it's not too confusing. Sometimes I have a hard time putting my thoughts to words that uh, that others are able to follow and understand. So, um, I'm going to look at the church in Antioch this morning to start off here, and I'm going to go through a number of verses real quick in Acts, uh, basically everywhere that it mentions the church in Antioch, but more than that, even even where it talks about uh, several places I'll read, it talks about Barnabas. It doesn't actually list the church in Antioch, but I'll explain that as I go here. Antioch. Oops, sorry. Barnabas first comes onto the scene here 
Um, later you'll see that Barnabas was sent to the church in Antioch, and I would presume that he was sent there to be a leader of the church there. Um, not quite. It doesn't give that specifically what his position was, but the church in Jerusalem sent him out there. There was already a congregation there, though, it would seem, so, or a group of believers anyway. But Barnabas first comes on to the scene here in Acts chapter 4, in verse 36, and Barnabas isn't even his name. Verse 36, it says, and Joseph, which would likely be Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation. He was a Levite and of the country of Cyprus. find it interesting that he was a Levite, um, so of the uh, priestly lineage. But he was surnamed Barnabas, and I think that from here on, that's how you'll hear him referred to. And it's interesting because Barnabas means the son of consolation or the son of encouragement. So apparently, the disciples um, from his life, what they saw was him going around encouraging people, and so they gave him that name. And then verse 37, having land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. You know what story follows that next verse? somebody else bringing money and laying it at the apostles' feet. And I just thought that was a little bit interesting, the contrast between the two. Uh, it's clear that, that Barnabas' uh, heart is pure here in what he's doing. And he's known for being an encourager. Let's skip over to Acts chapter 9. Verse 27. Okay, let me give a little background to this. Um, Saul had been converted here at the beginning of this chapter um, when he met Jesus on the road to uh, Damascus. He was converted. He spent a little bit of time there with Ananias. Um, the Jews there in Damascus made plans to... Sorry, I'm just kind of scanning through here and skimming, pulling out a few points for you to give a little background. Uh, the Jews in Damascus planned to kill him, so he escaped. The disciples took him by night and let him down the wall in a basket. And then Saul went to Jerusalem. And he, in verse 26, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. I find it very interesting that the disciples weren't going to, they kind of held, held Saul at bay a little bit, but it was Barnabas who came along and said, no, you guys, you need to believe this man. He's been changed. I've seen it. Acts chapter 11, next place I'd like to go, um, verses 1 through 18. I believe that Peter had gone to Cornelius in the previous chapter, and the first part of chapter 11 here is just a, a kind of a replay of that. says in verse 4 that Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them, just telling those there what, what had happened with Cornelius. 
Okay, so Cornelius would have not been a Jew, would have been a soldier in the Roman army. Um, if I have my history read on that. But so Peter went and preached Christ to him. They were baptized. Um, it says the Holy Ghost, one place it says the Holy Ghost fell upon them. And then in verse 18, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice, Cyprus, Antioch, and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. It's kind of interesting because they just realized that God had opened the way for the Gentiles, and here, here some were still preaching only to the Jews. But that is, other than one other reference that I didn't read, um, talking about a, I think it was one of the deacons that they had set up to wait tables, was from Antioch. Other than that, I believe this is the first mention of Antioch here in relation to Barnabas and to the uh, to the churches, to the Christian faith going forward from Jerusalem. And in verse 20, And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, which would be Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of those things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he had come, who when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves. <coughs> they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Okay, I find it interesting. Barnabas gets sent to Antioch from Jerusalem church which is in Jerusalem, sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch. It doesn't give any indication what they sent him for, uh, if they sent him to lead out in the congregation there of new believers, if they sent him just to encourage the churches along the way and make sure he went at least to Antioch. It doesn't, it doesn't really give any indication. But apparently he was there in Antioch for a long, long term, or felt it was to be a long term, at one point, he departed to Tarsus to get Saul. It doesn't really say, I, I didn't dig too deep for it, but I didn't really run across where it, it would indicate why or when Paul went from Jerusalem back to Tarsus. But, nevertheless, that's where Barnabas found him. And I wonder if after Barnabas left Jerusalem, if uh, Saul ran into more trouble Paul ran into more trouble with the believers there, or, or what his reason for going back to Tarsus would have been. Nevertheless, Barnabas seeks him out. It's sort of interesting then, as they go on their missionary journeys, which we'll get to in a little bit, it's always Paul and Barnabas going. It's kind of like Barnabas ended up getting the, uh, the back seat to Paul. But I really wonder if we would have had Paul in his writings if we didn't have Barnabas. Okay, let's go on a little bit in chapter 11 there. Um, and in these days, uh, verse 27, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, 
And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great be a great dearth throughout the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. The church in Antioch, a presumably fledgling little group, here takes up an offering to send to Jerusalem for the famine that's in the land. I didn't look, but I would have thought that Antioch fell into the area of Judea, which should have fallen into the area of the, uh, of the famine. I didn't, I didn't do my research on that, but nevertheless, a small group banded together and sent what they could to help out the brethren in Jerusalem. Chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius, and Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. It seems like um, Menaean must have been a friend of Herod's. I don't know if that's, uh, that's how you read that, but that's what it appears. So they had a friend of Herod as a member of this congregation. Uh, so it's, it wouldn't be really surprising to think that they would accept Paul then, who had been a persecutor of them, of the new believers either. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said to separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. When they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost departed, went about and, um, I'm going to kind of skip over that, but they went about on their first missionary journey there as it would be later labeled. Skip over to uh, chapter 14, verse 21. I might make mention of it here as you read through that section we're skipping over. Um, I believe that there is two Antiochs mentioned in that chapter. So they left Antioch, and later you'll see them arriving at Antioch and uh, encouraging the Christians there, I believe. And then on their way back, to Antioch, they stop in Antioch on their way. So as you read through it, it sounds a little confusing, but it appears like there's two Antiochs. And so in verse 21 of 14, they preached the gospel of that city, had taught many. They returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. I might have written the wrong verse down here. Oh, no. So that would be the Antioch of Pisidia. And then down a little further in 26, and then sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. So you see them returning back to Antioch. And then in verse, uh, chapter 15, this is... Uh, Maybe you could say the beginnings or the uh, um, where the uh, whole Jerusalem council started to come from. Chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem onto the apostles and elders about this question. 
it's kind of interesting that the church in Antioch, this question comes up, and they didn't really, they didn't just, well, you know, we don't believe that. You go do your thing, we're going to go this way. They, they said, well, let's go back and let's talk with the apostles about it. Let's have a discussion about it. What, what is right here? And we, we don't really know because of we have the outcome written here in front of us, but I would venture to guess that had the, Paul and Barnabas been told something different when they were in Jerusalem, that they would have accepted that, even if the council had come out and said that everyone needed to be circumcised. I would venture to guess they would have accepted that. Just based on what we've seen in the life of Barnabas, He set out, it appears as though he set out in his life to be an encourager. And he encouraged the churches along the way as he went, everywhere he went. And like I had said earlier, I, I would guess that he probably was an encouragement to Paul early on, especially when the disciples were rejecting Paul. If we didn't have Barnabas, I wonder if we would even have Timothy. Just the uh, Timothy being a, a spiritual son of Paul. Anyway, <clears throat> it's kind of a side note, but I thought that was sort of intriguing. So the part of the Antioch church that I want to look at today is in chapter 11. That is where it first refers to believers as Christians. Chapter 11 and verse 26. The title for my message this morning, I decided to give it, was What Does It Mean to Be a Little Christ? Just from other people preaching, I didn't, I didn't look this up myself, but I trust them when they say that the word Christian basically means little Christ. Um, and... could also be said little messiahs. Uh, Christ would be the Greek form of the word messiah, if I understand it correctly. So you Christians would be called little messiahs. And the word messiah in Hebrew would be defined as anointed. So you could say it like this, the church in Antioch were so like Christ, the messiah, the anointed one, that the people around called them little anointed ones. Okay, the word Messiah, meaning anointed, would refer to um, the, the anointing part of that would refer to things in the Old Testament or in the law about uh, consecrating um, or the ritual of consecrating someone or something. They would put a, a holy oil upon them, like uh, Aaron would have had it been anointed and it would have uh, flown down, it says, to the hem of his garments, something like that. Um, so that that oil used throughout the Old Testament as a consecration is a type of the Holy Spirit. So you have Barnabas, who is, uh, could you say, anointed with the Holy Spirit? It says, um, let me see, where was that verse? Verse 
verse 24 in chapter 11, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. So you have Barnabas, who's full of the Holy Ghost, has been, led, has been sent to lead out in the church there in Antioch. And I'm going to suppose that it was due to his being full of the Holy Ghost that led this church in Antioch to be called Christians, to be called um, little anointed ones. So we have an, an entire church, the church of Antioch, being viewed as little anointed ones. That would basically mean a church that is completely full of the Holy Spirit. And we have that testimony because of Barnabas. Sometimes I think I would do better writing a book than notes for a sermon. So sorry if I'm uh, if I look like I'm just reading through my notes. <clears throat> Since that time, I don't know when I, I didn't do the history on it. It's not really where I wanted to go with the message, but. Since that time, the term Christians has pretty well stuck with someone who, uh, someone who claims or professes to believe in Christ the Messiah. The word Christians has stuck and has been what they've been called. Um, you even have the Catholic Church, a whole, yeah, a whole host of beliefs among that labeled as Christians. And yet we call ourselves Christians today. I don't really know what to do with that. It feels a little funny. But it's something that I would take from the church here in Antioch is that they didn't go around calling themselves little anointed ones. It wasn't them that came up with that term. It was the people around them. And that, that's really where I would like to go with, my, with the message here this morning. I have a few other... Uh, points I'd like to get to or mention before we actually get to that. It doesn't matter. Well, an interesting thing, I guess, is that apparently the people around the church in Antioch had heard enough about Christ, had heard enough about what he had done. Um... Maybe not what he had done so much as as who he was, could you say that, or how he lived, that they were able to recognize that these people are just like him, that they resembled him. We can call ourselves Christians, but it really makes no no difference whether I say I'm a Christian or not. The point is, is that the people around us are the ones that will be able to tell and to know, am I living like Christ? You can do all kinds of mental gymnastics if you want to, to uh, on this whole thing of professing Christianity. But the reality is, is that those around us will know. I thought of this. It might seem a little bit funny, but just because someone would call themselves a tree or just because someone would call themselves a frog, it doesn't really make any difference. A caterpillar doesn't wake up one day calling itself a butterfly, and that's why it, it is. There was a transformation that happened that brought them to that place or brought the, the caterpillar to that place to be in that butterfly. And, there needs, and likewise, there needs to be a transformation in our life. To be a Christian, to be a little anointed one, we must pattern ourselves after the anointed one. We must live like him in order to be worthy of that name. Even if there are professing Christians around us, you know, everybody, there's a lot of people in the U.S. that would call themselves Christians. 
There's not a lot of people that live like it. And even those around us would, could can see. Uh, I've heard people say before, what is different about you guys? Like they recognize there's something different. I thought it was interesting, uh, just a note from a message of Dale Heisey's. He was telling a couple stories, and he talked about a, uh, a small congregation in Bolivia, and the Catholic Church, or he didn't give a lot of detail, but apparently someone in that community, the Catholic community there, which I think in Bolivia would be largely Catholic, um, they wanted to write a letter to the small congregation of believers in Concepcion, I think he said, Bolivia, and they weren't really sure how to address this congregation, so they addressed the letter to this church. They addressed it this way. They said, to the biblical Christian church, and he said, to this day, that name has stuck for that congregation, and I thought it was interesting because in any sort of um, not polls, but like uh, when they number, you know, how many Christians there are in a country or wherever they include Catholics, Protestants, and on down the line. And here this Catholic church says to the, to the Christians actually living like the Bible is how, literally how they address them. Another, uh, another interesting thing on names and, and what people were called, uh, he also told a story about uh, some, a couple of Romanian boys Apparently, at one point, when they lived here in the States, Dale and his uh, family had a couple of Romanian uh, refugees, I guess, living with them. And the Romanian um, population referred to, um, I guess you probably, trying to think how to say it. So even the people around the true believers, whether that be professing Christians or non, referred to this certain group of believers as repentance. Like the Romanian word they chose. Um, not repentance as in something we do, but repentance, T-E-N-T-S, as in people who have repented. Which is kind of intriguing because Brother Denny's definition of repentance a change of mind that brings about a change of action, I believe. Uh, CBI, let's see Jonathan. I think that's the quote, or the quote Denny and his definitions. So apparently they had repented, they had changed, their mind had changed, and their life showed it. So it would, I wonder, sometimes what people would have for a name for us. Okay, now kind of peeling off another layer and getting a little more into the heart of what I wanted to share this morning. And that is about this, the little anointed ones. To be a Christian, in the sense that that word was coined there to the church in Antioch, to be a little anointed one. What is it? What does that mean to us? What does that look like? No other person was like Christ. He was unique. What was it that made him that way? Um, just some thoughts here. It wasn't the miracles that he did. It's not that we are supposed to live up to that and do miraculous things like he did. It wasn't really his prophetic accuracy that we were called to live up to. His unusual birth, there's not been another person in history that was born that way. His untimely death, think of the rocks rending in midday at, uh, as he was on the cross there. It's not those things that he has called us to, to, um, to imitate, to follow him in, 
if it was, none of us could none of us could do that. None of us could be there. All those things were unusual. Uh, they were unique to Christ, but that isn't what people noticed about the believers in Antioch. They didn't say those are the people that follow that guy that died on the cross. They saw the person of Christ lived out in their lives every day. What was that person? I just have a small list here. Uh, I might expound on a couple of the points as I go, but what was it of Christ's life that they lived out? We're not told anywhere, so obviously this is my uh, supposition or my, my words here, but Christ had time for needy people. He had time for children, and he loved them. He blessed them. He was never too busy to hold them. We have the story of the disciples chasing the, the children away. Christ said, no, let them come to me. He was never too busy to be interrupted by anyone who wanted to come. Think of the uh, time near his death. or I think that would have been just a chapter or two before the Last Supper. Um, there's multiple accounts of it, but I think in some places it would refer to the lady as Mary, who came and washed his feet with her hair in the middle of him there with another group of people. He wasn't too busy to be interrupted. He required no luxury, just starting with the fact that he was born in a stable. He also didn't require accommodations for himself. He talks about him having no place to lay his head. This one I found interesting, and when I thought about it, he borrowed, he willingly borrowed from others. He borrowed a little boy's lunch. He wouldn't have had to. Would he have? Is it easier to make uh, five loaves and two fishes? Five fishes and two loaves. I always say that backwards. Is it easier to make that little bit of lunch into enough to feed 5,000 or to just make it all? He borrowed a donkey. I think even in that time, kings would have ridden on horses, wouldn't they have? He came in on a donkey. He borrowed a boat to cross the sea. He even borrowed someone's tomb. To kind of follow up that point, my thought there is that he wasn't above needing other people. In a way, he was, but he didn't show that to them. He received sinners. He touched lepers. Now, this is an interesting one, and I'd like to turn to Mark uh, chapter 1. I think you'd have this account in Matthew also, but verse 40. Uh, before I go to that, we probably all know and have heard many times um, the way the uh, the law would have been. A leper was an unclean person. They weren't allowed to be um, really part of society. And I think that they were supposed to have, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that they were supposed to have called out that they're unclean, you know, to warn people to stay away. As they came, how would that be for a life to to have to keep yourself at a distance from so many people? And then you hear about this man named Jesus and all that he's doing, but you're not even supposed to be near him. So in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 40, apparently one leper got up enough courage, or faith, I guess would be a better word for it, that there came a leper to him beseeching him and kneeling down to him and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Jesus was moved with compassion and put forth his hand and touched him and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. 
What do you think the Pharisees would have done if they would have seen that? Jesus put his hand on a leper. Not even supposed to come near to, to someone that didn't have leprosy. And here this man came and came to Jesus. He touched the untouchable. Uh, in his death, you have him forgiving men before they even asked for it. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He placed his hand on sick women. He visited the home of despised publicans. You have uh, specifically the story of Zacchaeus that I'd like to look at in Luke 19. Luke 19, uh, verse 1 through 27. Probably have time to read through this. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. What do you suppose he'd heard about Jesus that made him want to go see him so bad? And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree and to see him, for he was to pass that way. And then Jesus came to the place he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, forasmuch as he also is a son of Abraham. Okay, the story goes on. Or he's still there at Zacchaeus' house, clear through... Uh, verse 27, I believe. And it's interesting because that's where he gives. It would appear as though he gave the uh, parable of the talents there at Zacchaeus' house. I just thought that was interesting. I don't think I'd ever actually connected that before. Um, talents being a specific or a liter- literally a form of money then not abilities as we might often think of it uh, today. But you have Zacchaeus there, chief of the publicans, a tax collector. Um, verse 2 it says, and he was rich. And you have Jesus giving the parable about the talent. Um Find my place here. Okay, so you have Jesus coming along. He, it says he was going to pass by that way, so Zacchaeus climbed up in the tree. I'd wonder if, if Jesus actually was coming to Zacchaeus. Like, where was he going that he decided just to stop in and visit Zacchaeus? Or was he intentionally going to Zacchaeus? We don't know that, but uh, I wonder if that wasn't the case. But he finds Zacchaeus up in the tree. Imagine yourself being Zacchaeus. A short little man, can't see anything. So, you, Some of you, that may be easier than others, I guess. Imagine yourself as a short little man. But uh, climb up in a tree because you want to be able to see Jesus go by. You've heard things about him. What he heard, we don't know. But he had heard about him. So he climbs up in the tree to watch him go by. And it appears like Jesus walked 
In my imagination, Jesus walks to the tree and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for lunch. So hurry up and get down. Let's, let's go. Tax collectors were generally not appreciated any more then than they are today, I would assume. Maybe even less so. But he sought him out. And I think... Uh, that Matthew was even a tax collector, if I have that correct. He sought out those that were despised. Could we say that? And then, to top off this whole story, in verse 8, it doesn't say, okay, they went, uh, they went to the... Jesus said, let's go to your house and eat. They... They went there. Uh, he received him joyfully. Others around were murmuring. And then Zacchaeus stands up and says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I'll restore him. It's almost as if Jesus' presence in his house caused him to repent. We don't have any indication that Jesus preached anything, actually it would, it would indicate that he did his preaching after with this parable of the talents. How about the presence of little anointed ones? What effect will that have on people? If Jesus had not come by Zacchaeus' house that day. Do you think salvation would have come to his house? Because we have Jesus saying that in verse 9. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house. If Jesus hadn't sought out Zacchaeus, he might still be in the tree looking for him. You also have Jesus asking for a drink from a Samaritan woman. It's another really interesting story. Um, just the fact that how do I say it? The whole relationship there between the Jews and the Samaritans, um, as people groups, was it? It was out of. Um, it was out of the norm for him to step out and ask for a drink. I want to go to Luke 15. Uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners... For to hear him. They didn't come. They think about it like this. There's around the world today. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of Christians that are they're given different names uh, in Indonesian. In in Indonesia, we often referred to them as uh, name card Christians. Uh, it's required by the government to have a religion on your identity card, and so if you didn't want to be Muslim, you would put down that you're Christian. Um, other places they call them rice Christians because they'll, they'll be Christian as long as somebody's handing out rice. Um, there's various, various terms that are given to them, but these people in uh, verse 1 here, they didn't come to have their plate filled with rice. They came to hear him. They didn't come to see a miracle. He had done plenty of them by now. And I'm sure that that had gotten around many times when he, healed, when he would uh, heal somebody. Or I'm trying to think through that here a second. The only time that's... I know there was twice, or I think there was twice, but the one that's coming to mind where he didn't tell them to be quiet about what he had done and not spread it around was when he cast out the demons from the man in the gatherings. 
he told him to go back to his village and, and uh, tell his village what had happened. But normally when a miracle was done, he would, you know, um, you say try to suppress it a little bit or, or he didn't want them to go out just blasting this around, what he had done. But it often happened. And so we know that the people around heard of the miracles. You have different places where they, where they come because of the great things he had done. But here it says that the publicans and the sinners drew near unto him for to hear him. They didn't come to be healed. They came to hear him. In uh, Luke 4.22, I believe it's, you don't have to turn there, I just wanted to make sure I read this right, but I believe it's after he was preaching. Yeah, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, stood up to read, and there was given him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And after he finished with that, Verse 21, and he began to say unto them, In this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Where the uh, publicans and the sinners, and Luke 15 there, coming to hear him because of the gracious words. I would assume that was that was the case. I'm sure we could go on for a long time. I thought of the, uh, the song. It talks about the sky being a parchment and the oceans full of ink. Every man a scribe by trade. We, I don't think we could exhaust Christ. <laughs> exhaust Christ. Uh, we couldn't say enough or write enough. We would run out of things to be amazed about in the way he was, the way he lived, the way he uh, responded or acted to people. And then to think, that there's a lot of people out there that will just agree to the fact that, yeah, he was a good man. I don't know about you, but I have a little bit of a hard time uh, understanding you know, where, where a person like that can be at. To, I guess it's because they don't believe or they don't have the faith, but uh, just to think about that. Some people would say he was just a good man after all that we just looked at. Now I'd like to move on into application for us. I'm not going to make that for each of you. We each need to make that for ourselves. But I want to be a little careful how I say this because I, I want you to understand what I mean. If we were wanting to be called Christians or little anointed ones by those around us, obviously if we were just seeking for that, it would be the wrong motivation. Uh, things wouldn't turn out right. But... Quite sure how to how to say that. I guess maybe maybe you understand what I'm getting at. But if we were wanting to be called by Christians around us, if we were wanting to be seen as little anointed ones, 
How would we live? What should we do if we wanted people to see that in us? So that's the question. A couple things I had here. A mental ascent to Christianity will not get us to be called Christians. In fact, that mental ascent to Christianity and the lifestyle and the mindset that often goes with that is actually one of the chief reasons you'll hear from people who have left the church and why they have left is because it's just a bunch of hypocrites. And that's that mental ascent only to Christianity. And there's many that'll, that say they'll never join because of that even. So this is where uh, Vernon's message I found kind of interesting this morning. I had down in my notes Second Peter 3.11, how then should we live? If, if it would be right for those around us because of our belief and our faith in Christ to recognize us as being that close to Christ or that uh, walking in his footsteps so closely that they would refer to us as little anointed ones, how should we be living? And there's a lot of places we could go from here. Um, one that came to mind right right off as I was uh, thinking about this was in First John. Chapter 2. Let's read a couple of verses here. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's what I was just talking about, the, the hypocrite. The giving a mental assent, but not actually doing as Jesus did, or as Jesus taught us to do. He is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. And hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. We could go on through John quite a bit. I jotted down a couple other things. Uh, if you keep reading, you would get to there. If you say you're in the light and you hate your brother, you're still in darkness. Love not the world. If the love of the world is in me, the love of the Father is not in me. Those things require us doing something or acting, uh, could we say, acting differently, not just mentally agreeing that, yeah, we need, to, we need to love our brothers, but we actually need to do it. And it's when we do that that those around us see Christ in us. I wanted this to try to be an encouragement today, like Barnabas was, the son of encouragement. I wanted us to focus on Jesus and try to measure up to his standards, what he has called us to live like, the way he has called us to live, to have the gracious words coming from our mouth like they came from his. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So when we profess Christianity, it is, it's really our, our moral obligation to walk in that way, in the way that Jesus did when we profess faith in him. Um, a couple other thoughts here. I was wanting to go kind of go through the Sermon on the Mount a little bit. Um, so many points in there. Instruction for us and how we're to live. I also thought of this while I was preparing. I don't know how many of you are familiar or remember or, or uh, 
what comes to your mind when I bring up the, the uh, letters WWJD. The question, what would Jesus do? Uh, I suppose it's probably about 20 years ago that that was really a fad. And maybe not for you guys or through the Mennonite churches or, or through the charity churches at that time or anything, but where I came from, that was kind of a big deal. You know, this question, what would Jesus do? And it's really not a bad question. It really, it, it really is a, you know, an acceptable question. But the problem is, is that it just became kind of a cliche, if you will. Just, uh, well, I got this WWJD bracelet or bumper sticker on the back of my car, and uh, sort of like the, the uh, little fish has become. You know, it's just this just a symbol, but there's not any real meaning behind it for the person, generally. And uh, so I thought of I thought of that as a title, what would Jesus do? You know, how would Jesus live? We're supposed to walk in his, in his way, what would Jesus do? But in preparation, I was, uh, I was listening to another set of sermons, actually by Dean Taylor from Bible School, and uh, he described it like this. He actually talked about uh, WWJD in that series. And he said, when we ask that question, it's, uh, it's a little bit like, how can I apply or how does God's word fit into my life? And in reality, it should be, how can I make my life look like the Word? Hopefully you followed my uh, explanation there. I was having a little bit of trouble trying to simplify it to, to make a lot of sense. But the difference, the difference is, is huge in the long run. And I think that's why through that uh, movement, if you will, the WWJD movement, it, a lot of the people that uh, ran with that question, what would Jesus do? A lot of them didn't really get anywhere. Could you say that? It's not like, it's not like all of a sudden there was this group that was born out of that. It was you know, a real holy group that was moving towards something. And it, I don't know, I just kind of have this, in the back of my mind is, you know, what would Jesus do? Should I buy an Apple phone or should I buy a Samsung? What would Jesus do? It's kind of the impression that came out of it. And the question might be asked, would Jesus buy a cell phone, period? It might be a little more important. But, uh, so I think as we, as we look at this, we need to be looking at, okay, I lifted up the, an example of Christ and what he was today. How is my life, or how, how can I make my life resemble that? Rather than what can we take from the Bible here to fit into our life and the way we are. Dean Taylor said it like this. He said that it was either Augustine or Luther who was talked about holding a knife to someone's throat and killing them, but just making sure that they still loved them when they did it, because we're supposed to love our enemies. And uh, it just, that's kind of the extreme, maybe, of what I'm driving at, of going about our life, just tacking the Bible on. But a mental ascent to God's Word as the truth comes out this way. We say one thing and we do another. And we seek to take our life and make it what we read in the Word of God, we get a different result if we truly apply ourselves in that. When I was studying, I read a little bit of the history of where that WWJD question came from. I found it kind of interesting. Pastor and author Charles Sheldon published a famous novel called In His Steps which would uh, be drawn from, I think that verse in 
thought I had the reference down. Peter somewhere. Since Christ suffered for you, leaving an example so that you may follow in his footsteps. So it's drawn from that. And then the subtitle was, What Would Jesus Do? That was born out of a social gospel. Um, and it was primarily, just kind of reading some, uh, some, uh, somebody else's work on, on the origins of it. But it was primarily championed by the theological liberals attempting to undermine the true gospel by redefining it in terms of social justice and community activism. Advocates of the social gospel focused on curing society's ills such as economic inequality, alcoholism, poor working conditions, homelessness, slums, and inadequate education. While these reforms... While these reforms should be expected when Christ comes into a life, a society, if it was even wholly possible, wouldn't become Christian merely by reform in these areas. For these, for these people, the gospel message was no longer about the salvation of sinners, but the wrath of God, about the salvation of sinners from the wrath of God through the atoning work of Christ. Instead, it was about saving society from poverty and inequality through establishments of things like labor unions and charitable organizations. And so while, again, what would Jesus do isn't a bad question, but I would recommend that as we uh, go from here that we think about how I can make my life more like Christ that those around me can see or that Christ's life so emanates from me that those around would say, He's like a little anointed one. That's a challenge to us all. That's a high calling. Think of... Let me see if I can find it. I'm sure I'll misquote it. Colossians, um, verse one nineteen. it talks about, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So what I was thinking was, this is a high calling that we are to live up to. But it's not something we're supposed to be doing in our own strength either. Christ has given us all that we need to do that. And he's given us his example. I'll leave it with that.